It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni. Recent high-profile suicides remind us that we are fragile beings, some of us beset by the very challenge of existence. Life can be an unrelenting sprawl of setbacks and failures, and not all of us are equipped to make sense of these moments and move forward. When those we love turn down dark paths, few, if any of us, have any idea how to breach these shadows and pull our children, fathers, mothers, friends, and aunts and uncles back towards hope. Towards the belief that the fight is worth it and we are worthy of staying in it. Statistics tell us that suicide rates tend to be highest in rural places with easy access to firearms. So here in Franklin County, the challenge of prevention is real. On this very important show, we'll discuss how all of us can work to keep those who we love and are suffering able to feel love, to feel needed, and to feel the beauty of being alive. Our guest today has been deeply involved in the work of suicide prevention for many years. Kenny Wurtenberg is the Executive Director of the Mental Health Association of Franklin and Fulton Counties. Thank you for joining us today, Kenny. Well, thank you for having me. No problem. Let's start out uh, just a little bit of background about you and how you came to work in this field. Uh, well, the uh, Mental Health Association has been in existence for over 50 years in our community. Uh, we predate services, and we were instrumental in creating the old Cumberland Valley Mental Health Center. Uh, and uh, we focus mainly on education and advocacy around um, mental health issues. We're a peer-run organization, and 18 years ago, I came to MHA, um, took a rather circuitous route to get there, um, spent some time working uh, with a food program in Catholic Charities and really wanted uh, to be uh, close to a community and uh, make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so uh, being involved in a peer-run organization where people who have lived experience mm-hmm. uh, and know what it's like um, to, to every single day um, to succeed in their recovery uh, has been both inspiring and challenging for me. Mm-hmm. So in 18 years, how have things changed? <laughs> well, we don't... I like to ask the big questions, okay? We don't do things on handshakes anymore. Okay. Um, that's, I think that's the biggest thing. Things have gotten a lot more formal. Um, a lot of things have come to the forefront in terms of issues uh, nationally. Uh, recognition of, of depression and suicide, the importance of that, the recognition of, of the role that uh, unaddressed trauma uh, takes uh, and setting health determinants for folks, uh, but also funding has um, um, changed a bit. Um, there's still a lot of money being put into services, uh, but now uh, instead of just counting numbers of, pro- of people who go through programs, um, funders want to see outcomes. They want to see that the money they spend makes a difference, and that is a a continuing challenge because oftentimes with various forms of recovery um, success can be Mm short-term and success um, over the long course is like a roller coaster ride in many ways there's a lot of ups and downs to it Mm -hmm. okay now tell me if i'm wrong but these issues were carried a stigma for a long time. Do you feel like the stigmatization is going away or how do you feel that's being treated? Are, are we evolving as a society in how we look at 
depression and people who are suicidal? So first, let me say that at MHA, we look at ourselves uh, to a great extent as a civil rights organization. Really? Yes. Huh. And we believe that when people experience uh, a form of discrimination or bias because they have lived experience with mental illness, um, that it is a civil, absolutely a violation of their civil rights. Mm -hmm. And so people are excluded from jobs, people are excluded from services, uh, and, um, and recovery is a complicated thing sometimes because a great proportion of people who have serious mental illness um, will also have experience with the judicial system. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of things comes into play, come into play then right. in terms of qualifying for services. So to your question of does stigma, which we view as bias, which is an act of discrimination, uh, come into play? Absolutely it does. Uh, historically, um, if you think about this, um, uh, at the turn of the century, uh, we had what were known as, as um, essentially crazy houses, mm -hmm. and to use a, a term we don't like. Um, and these were places, institutions where people were sent, um, and they spent the rest of their life there, many of them. And some of them had um, mental illness, some of them had other things, some of them had um, undiagnosed physical ailments, some of them were just poor. Um, some of them, um, it was convenient um, and very easy for a family member to sign them in. They just wanted them out of their life. Right. Um, and so uh, people were treated very badly in these places. And so they came to have a very bad reputation. And, um, and hence, if you were sent there, then there was something wrong with you. And that has stuck culturally with us. Uh, through the years mm -hmm. so that we look negatively upon anyone who has anything different uh, about them right right so even today there's more there's more openness now uh, because specifically because of social media i believe people have an opportunity firsthand to share their own stories mm -hmm. and so they're putting their stories out there they're gathering in groups online and uh, that has made a tremendous difference uh, and there's a recognition, too, I believe, on a political level that if we don't um, address, help people address some of these issues involving recovery, then um, we're not going to be able socially to move forward. Right. Now, you say that you're using the term recovery. Yes, absolutely. Can you give us a little more definition on what, what you're talking about in regards to recovery? Well, okay. So there are several schools of thought about mental illness. Um, there's a school of thought out there. Um, that mental illness is a creation of the um, medical industrial complex. And so do diagnoses really exist? If you look at the diagnostic manual, some of these things are kind of a stretch. Um, some of these things um, in the latest iteration of the diagnostic manual um, were clearly written by representatives of the pharmaceutical complex. Um, that's one school of thought. There's another school of thought of let's make mental illness a chronic illness that can be managed. And so once you have it, you never get rid of it. So you are constantly in recovery. Mm -hmm. And that assumes that every time someone hits a rough patch in their life, that's their mental illness flaring up. And so um, we have to deal with it just like we would any other chronic illness like high blood pressure. 
And so we keep people constantly medicated. Right, right. Then there's a school of thought of, and one that we um, that we uh, really buy into, is that people hit rough patches in their lives. And sometimes it's a clinical condition, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it varies from individual to individual. It's very individual in nature. Um, there's no cookie-cutter approach. What works for one person may not work for another that a person um, may have to take medication for a while. They may have to take medication all their life. It depends what works. Right. Sometimes a medication will work and then stop working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's recovery for us. It is, it is that full spectrum of all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of really great brain research going on now where they're mapping the brain and seeing um, what happens when... Um, different parts of the brain light light up when things are triggered and they're making a lot of progress and hence we've been able to to come forth with some new approaches like um, eye movement desensitization uh, which is um, a real neat um, tool that's used by therapists where they have sensors on uh, placed at different parts of people's brains and they can monitor the brain waves and so they are actually helping folks to retrain their brain so that they don't get triggered by certain things that occur with, to them. Hmm, fascinating. It's very fascinating. And then, then we have, um, um, and that's neurofeedback, and then we have uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization, which is a process in which they um, have found that through repetitive telling of uh, a traumatic story and um, a rhythmic um, some some folks use clickers. It's just it's a rhythmic one two one two basically, uh, where you have that rhythmic pattern going, and you can retrain your brain that way so that you're not triggered by the thought of the the trauma the trauma coming back. Mm-hmm. And so those are two very exciting protocols that are being used that have come about as a result of of um, technological advances. Mm-hmm. Um, so recovery is continually progressing and how we look at it and view it changes um, as, as new information comes out. Another exciting thing is at one time we thought it was all a brain thing. You've probably heard about heard that saying. It's a brain thing. Well, it's not necessarily all a brain thing because now we know that there's, there are receptors in the gut. Really? Yes, that control how you feel as well. So, so diet becomes a component. Oh my goodness, yes. You know, I'm hearing more and more of that in regards to overall health is the people ignoring diet and its implications. So go on with what you're discussing. Abs- absolutely. And so it is we're we're a, a complex mechanism. And so there is a school of thought out there that it it's not just brain and gut that the whole as we begin to really understand the human body more that the whole body may be involved in in this. It, it's fascinating very, stuff. Very it's just really fascinating, exciting stuff. And some of the old thinking goes by the wayside. New thinking comes in. How we view recovery um, changes. There are folks out there who never thought that they'd um, essentially have a life again. Right. Um, where they could have choice of what they do and freedom to do what they do and mm-hmm. and have relative calm in their brain and and now are able to mm-hmm. um, so a lot of progress 
a lot of progress yet to be made. Sure. Let's um, talk about uh, the services you provide. And I'm kind of interested in the process. So if someone's listening and they feel like they need to reach out, how does it work? So we, we're a licensed provider and the primary service that, that we provide um, as a licensed provider is what's known as peer specialist service. So our peer specialists are people themselves who um, have lived experience. They themselves have a, um, a diagnosed mental illness and, or self-identify as having a mental illness. They get trained and certified and there's now a licensure for that that's um, coming on. And by 2019, the end of 2019, the law be licensed practitioners as well. Great. And so they work with folks, they've walked the walk, they work with folks um, to develop an individual support plan, which is a plan of recovery for them. Okay. So what would your recovery look like if you needed the help of a peer specialist and how can we help you? What is it about your, your illness that prevents you from moving forward? So it starts out with a conversation, it sounds Absolutely like. it does. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody wants that service, then they contact us and, and we'll um, set up an intake and they'll come in and the first thing we do is have that conversation. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Yeah. What's happening in your life? What is it you want out of life? Mm-hmm. How can we help you attain that? What are some of the signs that people should be looking for in regards to the depression that leads to these thoughts? So in terms of, um, it's pretty broad in terms of, of mental illness and depression. So look for really any change in a person's um, usual habits. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say normal because what's normal? You know, it's different for each of us. So whatever their usual habits are, if there's a change, if they're generally outgoing and and they're starting to isolate, um, it's an opportunity to ask them what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, If uh, if the opposite occurs, you want to ask what's going on as well. Um, If they start saying negative things or uh, things that (sighs) indicate that they may lack some hope about resolution of a particular situation, mm-hmm. you may want to have a conversation because they could be um, starting to become overwhelmed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, it can, and can lead to depression. The depression can lead to that and it can lead to depression. Sure. So um, ex- expressions of, of lack of hope, change in behavior, things people say, things people do, situations they're in. So in terms of Uh, whether a person is vulnerable to suicide, we look at those three areas, things they say, things they do, and and situations they're in. And and we look for change, but we also look for things, indications that they may may be giving us a hint. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things we know through the training that we provide for suicide intervention, and almost all models um, follow this. Um, They each have their own little bells and whistles, but they follow the basic platform of these three areas. Some have a different title for each section of it, but but that's basically what they're looking at. And so people will issue invitations um, when they're not well. They may be doing it consciously, and so it may be obvious. They may say, I'm not doing well. Yeah. You know, I don't feel good. I feel different than I normally have. I'm starting to hear voices. Right. Um, um, I hurt all the time. You know, I don't, uh, I'm not, I don't have an appetite anymore. I'm not interested in personal relations, whatever it is. Um, and so they're giving out some kind of verbal clue. 
as I said, sometimes they're obvious, sometimes they're not. And those are what we call indirect clues. And so people will say things um, like, well, you won't have to wor- worry about me for a while. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Well, he, they, they're not saying you don't have to worry about me because I'm going to kill myself. They're just saying you don't have to worry about me. A lot of people will just walk on by a comment like that and not dig deeper. The important thing is to ask what that comment means. And so people will say indirect things like that. The point is, dig a little deeper, find out whether it's suicide and depression, and if it is, then act further. Sure. Now, if a person does things that indicate they're at risk, um, it'll be things they don't usually do. It may be risky behavior. So maybe they're spending money they don't have. Mm, interesting. Um, maybe, they're, maybe they're giving away personal possessions. Mm-hmm. Things that are prized to them. Maybe they're just sleeping all the time and they're not mm-hmm. getting out of bed. They may not be bathing. Um, as I said, maybe their appetite's off or maybe they're eating too much. Too much, yeah. Um, so it could be a behavioral thing. So you pay attention to that. Are they doing something differently? And then you look at the situations that a person might be in that would place them at risk of suicide and indicate they may be depressed about it. So. In reality, it's any situation that would put a person under stress, both positive and negative. Hmm. Okay? So if you're a student and you're doing badly in school, that would put you under stress and you might be at risk of suicide. Mm -hmm. If you're a student and you're doing well, you're at the top of your class, well, you certainly have a great deal of stress on you to maintain that. That may put you at risk of suicide. So it's all ends of the spectrum. It's all ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. So it is situations that are stressful, hard to manage, um, and um, may have negative outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so you put all those things together. Any one of those is enough for you to ask a person if they're, if they're feeling suicidal. The more of those you see, the more at risk they are, and the more important it is that you that you help them. What are the techniques for drawing out people who are not willing to talk? People who are retreating, and maybe they're giving off enough of those signals, but they're just not talking. Yeah, and sometimes people do that. What we found is that once you're able to make a connection, people really want to get it out because it's like a pressure cooker building up Mm -hmm. it just builds up pressure and builds up pressure and there has to be that connection there and so um, you engage them in conversation you try to connect with them you be very direct i do not favor being indirect and and taking the long way around the barn i go right straight to it Mm -hmm. are you you know here's what i see Mm -hmm. lay out what i see and i use the model these are the things you say these are the things I'm seeing you do. Mm-hmm. This is the situation you're in. All these indicate to me that you're at risk of suicide. Mm-hmm. Talk to me. And people will feel relieved. I mean, I've had people just burst into tears. I bet. They're so relieved. So I hear what you're saying, and I think that's important for us to really absorb, that don't dance around it, that go straight to it. Absolutely. And, and that's keeping in mind that this is in this Pennsylvania Dutch culture, we don't do that. No, not at all. Bury your feelings. We're very indirect people here. Very, very much so. What about some of the other factors that play in, like substance abuse or guns in the household? I mean, how do you address these, and what, how, what role do they play? As we know, in Franklin County uh, in 2017, 
seventy percent of all suicides in this county were by gun, and then the other thirty percent were asphyxia, which I assume is maybe hanging yes. or something like that. So, in this county, we have a real issue where people become depressed and they have a method and a mean very much available to them. So, if a family member is depressed, what do you recommend other people do? to kind of maybe keep substances away from them or redirect them from access to weapons? So um, we live in a gun culture. Guns are very important to us. It's part of who we are here. And um, over 90% of our households have guns. And we feel safer with our guns. They're part of our recreation. And guns are handed down as heirlooms from Mm -hmm. father to son, daughter to daughter. Mm -hmm. And so they're very important to us. So access is is critically important. We see the increase in the use of guns, um, especially among women, because in this modern day, women have more access to guns themselves. Um, They know how to use them. They use them more. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an increased number of women who um, are licensed to own handguns, and so it's there, it's part of it. So um, first thing is to use common sense. A lot of households and uh, have a gun behind every door. Mm-hmm. It's just for their own protection. Sure. And so if you have a family member who is depressed and you're worried about their safety, that has to change for that time period. Mm-hmm. So gun safety locks, locked up in a, a gun cabinet, maybe even removing them from the house temporarily. Mm-hmm. And most people... Uh, when they know it's only temporary and that when you're when you get through the episode um, that you'll get your firearms back are willing to do that mm-hmm. um, the other part of that is is making sure there's no ammunition in the house right asking the right questions it's very interesting we did a training not too long ago and we do a simulation um, an intervention simulation where we go down around the room and everybody gets to ask a question as part of the simulation well at the early part of the questioning one of the participants said have you bought any new guns and so that's a very specific question have you bought any new guns and so about five participants in from that Another person said, I know we asked about new guns, but what about guns you've already owned that you have in the house now? Mm-hmm. Cover the full spectrum. Right. Don't, don't be so specific that you're only covering some. Mm-hmm. And so uh, limit access to firearms. And it's no different with, than, with other means as well. So if a person's chosen means... Um, would be medication, you limit access to those medications. You, mm-hmm. If they take medications regularly, you make sure they don't have so many of a particular one that it would be toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe their their chosen method is something else. Maybe it's hanging. Well, make sure that, and this is a challenge, that that means is not there. We had an instance once where we had an individual on the phone and the way we were able to diffuse the plan was we had a neighbor come over from next door and lock their tool shed. Hmm. Now, how did that stop the plan? Well, it stopped the plan because that's where their shop vac was located. Why did that matter? Because the hose from the shop vac was what they were going to use to hook to the tailpipe of their car. So when we eliminated the the shop vac, Uh the plan was diffused. And so we were then able to buy time and get the person the help that they needed. Mm -hmm. 
So it's about limiting access to the means. Means matter a great deal. Indeed. So in the substance abuse category, what are some of the warning signs there? I mean, are there tells that people can be looking for? Let's say you have someone in your life who's a a drinker or what have you. Um, And I know this is a big one, too. And so what, what are some of the warning signs we should be looking out for with people who maybe kind of have a problem already? Okay, so there are a couple things about substance use. One of the things we know is that uh, when you use different substances, they tend to knock away your inhibitions. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but I've never made any real life-affirming decisions when I was under the influence of anything. Agreed, agreed. And so um, if you have someone who is actively using, they are automatically at risk of suicide. And so you need to have that conversation with them. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that I want you to think about um, how we approach um, substance use recovery in this country. Mm -hmm. When a person is in recovery, when they're sober, it's a mantle they wear. When they're actively using, they're a drunk, they're a user. And that's how they're known. That's their identity. When they're sober, they're suddenly the sober person. But we don't give it to them wholesale. We don't give them the whole cloth. Mm -hmm. You're only sober for the number of days you're sober. So if you're sober for 20 years and then you have a slip, even if it's just for one day, you're only sober for a day. So you've lost your identity. And when you lose that identity, it's a terrible blow. And you are specifically at risk of suicide Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, you're falling into a negative feedback loop, I would think. Absolutely. You're a failure. Yeah. You messed up. You let, let everybody yeah, down. Yeah, you let everybody down. Yes. Yeah. And so why not take another drink and just keep going? That's exactly right. Well, let's talk about kids. This one, I pulled off the internet, Nurturing Resilience for Kids. Mm-hmm. And this one I'm, I'm very sensitive about um, as a father. Um, how do we talk to kids and how do we kind of build in, you know, the self-esteem needed to keep them protected from, you know, a, a depressive uh, cycle of thinking? Wow. So my, uh, my number one tenet in talking to kids is to be honest. Right. They automatically distrust me because I'm an adult, especially a teenager. Yeah. Wow. I don't have any credibility with them. Right. So, um, so I have to be honest and straightforward. Uh, the second thing is that you don't assume anything with kids. They know a lot more than you think they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so treat them, treat them with respect. Um, here's the other thing we know. We know that a large number of people in this country are affected by unaddressed adverse traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. and that they have li- lifelong effects mm-hmm. uh, in every aspect of our health. It can affect your earning capacity, mm-hmm. uh, your ability to have relationships, etc. And so most often what you may be talking with a younger person about will be some type of traumatic event that has led up to the point where they are questioning themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to I want to read some statistics to you okay. from the last um, Pennsylvania Youth Survey. It's a survey taken by some of our school districts. Okay. So this is Franklin County um, data, uh, and they did um, tenth grade, twelfth grade, eighth grade, and sixth grade students. So, 
in all those categories, 20 to 30% of those students felt so sad during the day that they stopped doing their usual activities. Hmm. That's too many people. Nearly 20% of them considered suicide. Um, nearly 15% planned a suicide, and 10% attempted suicide one or more times. Wow. That's our kids. Right. Okay? So we're not really doing a lot to address that. And so talking to kids um, about suicide and about the issues that lead to it in the stress of growing up is really key. Mm-hmm. And talking to kids about the fact that they are the, our frontline defense in their own health mm-hmm. is also key. We're very used to trying to protect our kids. We need our kids to help us to protect them. Right. So it's why we did um, suicide intervention training in health classes this year at Greencastle High School. Talk a little bit about that if you could. Um, great group of kids. We started out over the summer uh, with a leadership class that they had, just really engaged, really bright, a lot of great questions, a lot of great insight. That led to us coming in and doing the health classes. What kind of questions were they asking? You know, you would think that they would be different, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually it's, how do I say this? I'm afraid to say this. Mm -hmm. Where do I go to get help? You know, if I think, you know, if I think this, this other student is suicidal or I know they are, I don't know where to go. And then I don't want to get them in trouble. And so students have to know that they're in a safe environment and where there will not be any loss in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think the school um, does a good job of trying to communicate that uh, more and more. I'm excited about that. Um, more schools are starting to look past just staff. All school staff is supposed to be trained now um, by regulation in suicide intervention. Mm-hmm. And so they're all taking it very seriously. and. Now they're going the extra yard, and they're having students uh, trained as well. Oh, that's great. So they have people on the ground working to assist. Yes. And so I want to, uh, uh, people may think, oh, we'll, you know, if we talk to our students about this, we're going to put the idea in their head. And I can assure you that is a myth. Okay. By the time you talk to them, they've already thought about it. And read about it. And, and... read about it. And we've had um children as young as five years old present at our local crisis mm-hmm. um, um, department with thoughts of suicide. Oh my God. And very coherent about what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, five years old is rare, but it does happen. And so as they get older, we have to, we have to address this. Mm-hmm. And so education really is the key. The more we talk about these things, set aside the time to do it and, and talk about it, um, the more used to having these type of discussions people uh, will be and the more willing they will be to get help both for themselves so and So you're, you're, you're breaking this taboo. Uh, I, I hope we are. You're Absolutely. tearing it apart and saying, no, th- we are going to talk about this and we're going to have a healthy conversation. One of the other things listed in here in Nurturing Resilience for Kids was have a positive self-view. I think that's a, uh, a big one because the world comes at them in ways they're not always ready for. Can you talk about how maybe parents can address that or peers or how we can kind of assist? 
So also in that PAYS survey, 20 to 30% of the students um, had low self-esteem. Yeah. Felt, they felt worthless. They expressed that. And so that is a concern. And so I think positive reinforcement is key in bringing up a kid. Now, you know, I'm not one of those people who thinks everybody should get a prize for participation. No, that's not what we're talking about. But I do believe that when that in order for for people to grow, not just children, but adults as well, they need positive reinforcement. They need someone to say to them, it's all right. It's all right that you failed. Here's how we fix this. Let's do this together. I got your back. Mm. Let's do this together. And good job. You did a good job. Mm -hmm. You're a good person for doing that. Yeah, 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 that's that's perfect. Let's move on to social media and its impact. Um, Talk about your experiences there because this is a big one. Um, We will every so often read about some kid who the social media just attacked them and they couldn't take it and, you know, you know how it ends. Well, bullying um, is a horrible thing and... Many of us over the years, especially in school, experienced that. Mm-hmm. And um, bullying can, um, can be a motivation uh, for some people in terms of, I'm going to show them. Right. And for other people, it sets a pattern for their life. Yep. Uh, and so schools are, are starting to address that. That's a good thing. What was your question? <laughs> That's okay. Social media and its Oh, impact. social media. So... Um, We've actually added a part uh, onto our suicide intervention training talking about texting now. Mm -hmm. Because uh, in talking to our students, they told us that they were more likely to text a friend about not feeling well than call them on the phone. They're just more likely to text, period. Absolutely. And so we... Uh, we didn't invent this. We we pulled up from National Hotline do's and don'ts about what to do when you're texting a person. And by and large, it's uh, be positive, be affirming, offer help in any form. Mm-hmm. Be careful about what you say and how you say it. It's very hard to know um, that you're both on the same page. And a text can be read different ways. That's Absolutely. one of the terrible things about it. You know, we, we, we infer what we already think about it, and it could be completely wrong. So just like we do with helping a person in person, we say in texting, do some reflective listening because it's validating and reaffirming. Mm-hmm. It feels a little awkward at first to say to a person, what I hear you say is, you're not feeling well. Mm-hmm. But to hear that come back to you after you've just spilled your guts really affirms you. And it encourages you to continue with the conversation to get the help you need. I, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I, that point, I think, should be carried through any of these conversations. The, you affirm that you're hearing what the person is saying. You're affirming their suffering and that you, know, you want to hear about it. And you do so in a non-judgmental yes, manner. Yes. So we all have you know, built-in biases about all kinds of things. And we all, whether we have thought through or, about it or not in advance, we all feel some way about suicide. Mm-hmm. And so what we encourage people to do is to do some introspective thinking, know how you feel about it in advance, be able to set that to the side mm-hmm. so that you can help the person get the help they need. Mm-hmm. Don't express judgment about anything that they do. Yeah, yes, just remain neutral and be yeah. a good listener. So let's move on to uh, the LGBT community, another vulnerable group. 
Um, talk about how you address that, and is there a peer network for them? Um, we approach all people um, pretty much with the, the, the same method, and that is we give respect to everybody. Mm -hmm. We make no judgment. Um, we try to uh, consider um, cultural differences that we have mm -hmm. because cultural differences can be barriers. Yes. And so sometimes you set aside whatever cultural beliefs you have in order to help the person. And sometimes it's useful because you can be from the same culture and have a connection. It's a way for you to connect and you have automatic legitimacy with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it makes all the difference in the world. Sometimes it never comes up. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, especially with LGBTQ, um, it may be a driving factor because they have experienced such hardship in their life in terms of coming to terms with their own identity, right. then trying to talk to family members and friends about that and not necessarily um, having the most positive reaction all the time. Right. Fighting through that, having fighting through discrimination, maybe at a job or, uh, or school, feeling isolated and alone. Mm -hmm. All these things, though, are things that other people of other groups also experience. And so there's a commonality there mm -hmm. that you can make a connection as well. Right. So you approach it as, you know, the suffering you're feeling is more universal than you might imagine. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And because of their life experiences, uh, folks in the LGBTQ community are susceptible to depression yeah, and, they are. and suicide. And in a conservative area like ours, um, I would think it'd be even harder for some of them to kind of realize their full self, especially if they're younger. Yes. Okay. I do see some movement here. Do you? Talk about that. Absolutely. I, I think 18 years ago when I first came to this community, there were um, a lot of people with very set beliefs and... Um, who wouldn't consider another person's point of view in terms of, of LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. And while I think that their beliefs may still be the same, I see an acceptance in terms of um, their willingness to coexist. Mm -hmm. It's progress. Live it's not live. where it's we need to be. A little, one step at a time, and That's I agree. That's exactly right. I agree. Another uh, group extremely vulnerable are veterans. Yes, how does the peer network exist for them through your services? Because their suicide rates are pretty staggering. Um, veterans groups, all groups, are tough to break into, especially if you are not a member of that group. And I would think... It's in, a challenge. Yeah, in that situation, they really need a peer. They expressly want a peer. Yeah. Now, I have a firm belief that most people can find common ground and be able to connect. Mm-hmm and be able to help each other. But there are just some things with, with every group that it just helps a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. You don't have to explain things as much. Right, you're speaking the you same know? language. You're able to talk to your own experiences and get to the crux of the issue rather than spending your time on background information. Right, right, right. So services are available for them as well. Yes. The Zero Suicide Program. Let's get into that and talk about what you've created here and then let's also you know talk about your your the program you've created out there uh we'll start with the zero suicide program what is that so zero suicide is a is a worldwide movement really and it's a pretty simple concept and that is that there is no number of suicides that it's acceptable mm -hmm. 
the only acceptable number is zero suicides. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you aim for. Mm -hmm. And it is not an aspirational goal. It is a real goal that you, that you can achieve. And so um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, which is a federal agency, funded uh, the creation of this initiative, Zero Suicide. And they have instituted it uh, in whole health systems. They want to do this on a large scale sure. um, way. And, and so it's about changing how you do business so that every aspect of how you do business considers suicide. Mm-hmm. And um, processes, they find leaders within the organization. They train them in the zero suicide method. They identify barriers to implementing the initiative, um, they engage stakeholders within the organization, and then they start uh, using their meth- the methods. They change things. You think, well, how does this uh, relate to suicide? They change their organizational policy manual mm-hmm. so that it, that's where staying power is for any initiative where in your policy manual, it dictates that these steps will be taken and how you practice your craft. Okay. And so they do that and and there's constant transition and improvement and quality uh, assessment of what they do. We believe, although they did not create a model for a small organization like ours, we believe that this can be um, adapted to smaller organizations, to independent providers, and that you don't have to be part of uh, a whole healthcare system in right. order to do this. Right. You can set that as a goal. Mm-hmm. You can change your policies. You can change the way you do things. You can do depression screenings. And so the Suicide Prevention Coalition adopted Zero Suicide as um, part of our um, plan moving forward to try to get organizations within Franklin County to consider the zero suicide philosophy. Mm -hmm. Recently, Franklin County Mental Health added that to their their ongoing mental health plan. Mm -hmm. And so the next step for us really is to get organizations and entities on board to take a zero suicide pledge that any number of suicides is unacceptable and our goal is zero. We would like to see um, the Franklin County commissioners make that statement. It's not enough Mm. just for them to have it in their mental health plan. I want to hear it come past their lips. Mm -hmm. I think they'll do it. Mm. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Because they've been funding um, our suicide intervention training for a number of years. So they believe in what we're doing. Um, I would like to see organizations um, like Summit Health adopt this. I would like to see churches adopt this. I'd like to see disciples of prevention from churches mm-hmm. adopt that philosophy that nobody within our congregation will um, commit suicide. Right. And so every type of organization could do that. And the first step in, for any organization, a really easy step to be able to achieve that is to have every single person who works in the organization is part of that organization in any way take a suicide prevention training. Mm-hmm. If you take it online, it's one hour out of your life. If you take it in person, it's two hours. Where do we, we find that? Do you have so a, a you URL? Can, 
Yes, you can You can call us, you can email us, we'll send you the information. And Let's go ahead and get some of that information out now. Your phone number, your website, uh, the hotline. Um, yeah, let's, let's share okay, that information. Okay, so our phone number is 717-264-4301. Our website is mhaff.org. They can email us at info at mhaff.org. And we'll send them directions on how to access um, our suicide intervention model, QPR. They just put QPR in the topic line and ask for the information, and and we'll send it to them. And I want to mention that that online QPR has uh, been funded by Summit Endowment. Okay. Um, So that's very helpful. If if a group wants in-person training, just call us or email us, and we'll come. If it's in Franklin County, it'll be free. And that is funded by Franklin Fulton MHIDEI. And, you know, if people buy into this, this, you know, may be attainable. Absolutely. To date, we've trained over 5,000 people in QPR. Our goal is to train as many residents of, of Franklin County as we possibly can. Sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us here today. Uh, if there's any final thoughts you want to share, now would be a great time. Um adopt the zero suicide philosophy it's really easy take a one-hour course and you can be part of the movement okay great kenny thank you so much for being with us here today thank you we're gonna go over to producer jeremy what do you got for us jeremy yeah thanks um i just wanted to say i think uh the uh, franklin county coalition for progress is in talks with kenny uh to schedule you to uh at a second Saturday event at the library in September. Yes. So that would be on September 8th. September uh, is also Suicide Prevention Month. Right. So, and those are held from 10 until noon in the conservatory at the library. Coming up in July, they're going to have Ezra Thrush, who's the Director of Policy at Penn Future, and that's going to be on climate stewardship and environmental justice. Okay. So look for that on July 14th at the library. And thank you guys both for the show today. And uh, find the Progress Pod online at progresspod.org. And find us on Twitter at the Progress Pod. Thanks for listening. Thank you.